When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and today we have a special guest, Brian Adams. No, not that Brian Adams. There'll be no no acapella. But Brian Adams is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital, where he spearheads the investor relations and capital markets arms of the firm. He has 10 years of experience in real estate, private equity, and has advanced knowledge in best practices for strategic real estate investing. We're going to talk to Brian today about how you can use private equity and real estate as a part of your investment strategy to reach financial independence and to graduate into retirement. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm sure no one has quipped about your name uh, ever before, right? I'm the first? You're the first one today, but it's early. So <laughs> well, uh, well, I'll let you know what the tally looks like at the end of the day. Uh, very good. So this is Brian with an I for everyone out there, not Brian with a Y. And um, you, are, so, you, you are dating yourself a little bit. I, I, I hate to go there, but you know, listen, people I work I, with, millennials, have no idea uh, what this joke is. So. Well, well maybe, maybe they'll Google you and maybe they'll, find, <laughs> yeah. maybe they'll find some of your hits from the 80s, which yes. I am now dating. I'm turning 50. Uh, Brian, mm. which is alarming in and of itself. I'm a lot older than you, I think. But I'm turning 50, and that means that I'm allowed to, to crack dad jokes because I'm also a dad. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. I know you're in Nashville, Tennessee, one of my favorite places in the world, actually. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got started on this journey uh, and what gets you excited about, about wealth building and helping people uh, amplify their, their own resources. Absolutely. So I'm from New York originally, um, met my wife in college in Connecticut. We both went to a, a small liberal arts school there. And my wife is a Nashville native. So we did the Northeast thing for a little bit. I went to law school in Boston. And then like every other Nashville girl ever, <laughs> she wanted to move back home. And so I've been here about 15 years. And very serendipitous in terms of my entrepreneur journey. I practiced law for a number of years. I grew up and I feel like everybody says this, but you know, upper middle class. My father was an attorney. My mother was a child psychologist, which it's a whole different kettle of fish we can get into on the next one. Um, (laughs) And I, I grew up comfortably, but I had no concept of what a family office was or what private equity was or what alternatives were. My wife's family has a single family office here in Nashville. And when I joined the board after we got married as an ex officio member, this whole world opened up to me through my father-in-law, who's the patriarch, and through our uh, CIO, who helps us invest into private opportunities, and just went on this crash course of, of learning and was very fortunate to have a great network through my wife's family of people who were willing to just sit down and have coffee with me. And, um, you know, real estate was something that the family had invested in for a long time. And I became enamored with the asset class, with the business. And I connected with uh, my partner, who's also a New Yorker, married a Nashville uh, native. And we started the company 11 years ago now. And um, 
it's been quite a journey, but today we have 17 employees and almost $500 million of, uh, of real estate under management today. Fantastic. So, so we are, we have similar trajectories in the sense that, you know, I, I started BFG back in 03 and we've now grown to about 23 people, um, and about 600 million in assets. So we're, we're running some, some similar, uh, similar entities. However, um, yours is very specific in terms of its, in terms of not only its asset class, but the way in which you're handling that. Tell us, tell us a little bit about why real estate makes such a difference and why alternatives in general, um, make a difference in a in a portfolio design in a wealth building strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something where you know families have understood this for a long time that if you want asymmetric returns, you need to take asymmetric risk. And, and what I mean by that is you can't just do a sixty forty portfolio, right? If you want to create alpha, if you want to create return uh, beyond what just the market will give you, you need to be in private equity. And I just think this concept of alternatives should really be reframed. And it's just investing, right? If you talk to families in Europe that have existed for hundreds of years, multi-generational, there's an adage there within the family office community that you should divide your money into a third into gold, a third into real estate and a third into art, right? Those are things that appreciate over time. They can provide you with current income and they're very tax efficient. And, and I think those thirds of a pie are still applicable today, but they may just look a little bit different, right? So real estate, now we have a buffet of options because of sponsors and GPs like yourself and me that people can access and then you've got art, which now you can do NFTs and you've got masterworks and all these other abilities to have fractionalized ownership of these assets. And then gold, maybe it's crypto for you, right? But conceptually, I think that's a lesson that a lot of people need to take to heart because Wall Street has taught us or tried to teach us that we just need to do these index funds and everything will be okay. But if you take a step back, bonds are not going to deliver for you. And the market can provide some upside, obviously, but you need to have diversification if you want to achieve certain goals over the long term. Well, the, the good news is you're preaching to the choir. Um, you know, the, the challenging news is some of the strategies that, that you're talking about and that we espouse are really not available to everyone. A lot of them are available to accredited investors or they're, or they're available to higher net worth families or family offices or, and so forth. Um, but more and more, these are available to, to, to more what I'd call upper middle class investors. Um, folks who have portfolios that need to be managed that don't wanna just hold an index fund and forget it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the access to these kinds of assets? Because I, I think, I think this is a, a world that is uh, exponentially uh, growing. I, I could agree anymore. And the, this is hackneyed, but this democratization of access to alternatives, what I really view as the moat that Wall Street had created around private equity for the last 35 years is being disintermediated. So now through social media, through networks, through um, podcasting and blogs and webinars and YouTube, 
people now can educate themselves 24 seven and really learn about these different asset classes, different niche strategies. And it does take a little bit of work and, and there are some barriers to entry, like you said, about being a qualified purchaser, being a credit investor. But I think more and more people are realizing that they can do that heavy lifting. They can do that homework on their own and they can find out about these investment opportunities and these sponsors and it, it's growing, right? If you think there are 13.3 million accredited investor households in America, um, and that number's only going up and roughly 3% have access or exposure to private equity or alternatives today, this is, this is going to be, I think, the next frontier of investing where people have seen how private equity has outperformed over the last 20, 30 years. And now everybody is going to start hopefully gaining access, learning about the space and, you know, reaping the benefits of being an investor there. If, if there's one thing we know from, uh, from, from understanding the financial world, it's that there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and you talked about asymmetric returns and risk. Um, I, I think a lot of folks are uh, a little bit skittish um, having gone through uh, the great financial crisis and, and many of them Y2K before that and many of them Black Monday before that. I'm dating myself again. But um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the private equity piece, one of the challenges in this asset class, and there, there are several, one of them is basically complete illiquidity which means you have to know what you're doing in terms of uh, your, your need for accessing capital. And the other is the J curve. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. And I would like to kind of piggyback on top of that commentary. I, I don't disagree. And for a long time, we have been told that Wall Street and, and the wirehouses and these big banks are the quote unquote smartest guys in the street. But they've managed to blow themselves up about every 10 years. Um, and so, you know, I really push you're right. back. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, and I know some of these folks. I went to school with some of these guys, and they are incredibly smart. But Wall Street, at the end of the day, is a, is a sales force. I mean, they are, they are pitching product, and they're very, very, very good at it. They're very creative. Um, but again, if they're so smart... Why do they continue to need bailouts by the Fed and the government and the retail investor? Folks like us seem to be holding the bag a lot of the time. Um, now, that being said, I, I agree with you. There, illiquidity and risk, and when we think about risk in private equity and alternatives, I think it's helpful to define it, right? So I view risk as permanent loss of capital, which is different than volatility, right? Things may go up or down. Some deals may work short term, they may work long term. But when I think about risk in my portfolio and as a family, I'm thinking about things going to zero. And, and we certainly have had that in our venture and private equity portfolios. Luckily, not in real estate yet. It's proved to be a very resilient asset class. Um, so that's how I think about this. Um, in terms of a J curve, um, it can be a challenging concept. Um, the way that I think about it, and we have raised blind pool funds in the past, um, it's this wonderful 
concept that once you start creating an accelerating return of capital, in other words, once I've, once I've given all of your original capital commitment back and that investment continues to perform, that hockey stick keeps going up, right? That's that wonderful infinite return concept that you get potentially. Um, but it does come with some risks that you mentioned. So one of the challenges in public markets, and, and I think we're going to see more and more public companies go private. I really do, because the, the, it's so onerous to deal with Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank and all of the other regulatory hoops that you have to go through to be a public company today. Um, there's also this enormous pressure that every quarter you have to hit your earnings and you have to make sure your multiples are right and everything else. And so you wonder why some of these companies seem to blow themselves up. It's because, in my opinion, it's because CEOs are driven by the need to have a great quarter every quarter and eventually you're not going to. And that's where the parachutes happen and that's where people hold the bag. Am I missing something or is that sort of the, the, the trying to have Im immediate results every quarter is eventually not going to work? No, I agree completely. We internally pursued potentially doing a REIT roll-up recapitalization of, of part of our portfolio and spent a lot of time talking to other sponsors, other publicly traded C-suite folks, investment bankers, etc. And uh, being a public company right now is really challenging. And we, we know the statistics in terms of there are much fewer public companies today than there were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, almost in a, in a exponential sense. And it, it feels like private equity and venture capital understand this. And that's why you're seeing these companies stay private longer and potentially never go public because they right. don't want that. They don't want that scrutiny. I, I, you know, it's interesting because you look at WeWork, at some point when you run through all of the largest investors in the world, there does need to be some ultimate liquidity. And so public markets still offer that to many folks. But when you look at the performance of these companies post IPO, they're really pretty poor. And we in our minds, I think, say, oh, the S&P and Dow Jones and these indexes and these big quote unquote blue chip companies but the turnover in the S&P is about 20% a year, right? I mean, you look at General Electric, you look at Kodak, you look at all these companies that were true blue chip value firms and things change, right? And sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with the underlying business. It could be the whims of the market. Um, and I think there's a lot more going on in the public markets than, than people realize sometimes. And, um, at least for me, I do have exposure in the public markets, but it can seem like a bit of a casino at times. Well, and, and I, I tend to be, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of traditional index funds. I, I do like passive investing for the most part because I do think cost matters. And I do think turnover can create expenses and taxes depending on the, the type of investment. And so when it comes to, you know, large cap U.S. companies, I, I tend to believe that if we can pick the 400 of the 500 of the S&P that we like and just hold on to them, we're probably better off than the mandated purchases and sales every time somebody leaves or, or, or joins the index itself. 
Um, you mentioned in our open. You mentioned that bonds weren't gonna weren't gonna be the solution. I think bonds are are a time bomb right now in a lot of different ways. Um, not only because interest rates appear to be uh, on the rise, but also because yields have been so bad for so long. Um, and so it's difficult to find a place to hide when cash is paying nothing. We're not on the gold standard anymore. Um, bonds are paying next to nothing and have market risk uh, and timing risk associated with them. Um, and people don't want to hold 100% in equities, and that's where alternatives have to play a role. So we've started looking at private debt and private credit as well. Do you do any of that work in your private equity funds too? Do you also do some private lending? We don't do any in my day job at Excelsior. We are uh, only doing common equity. But on the family side, interestingly, we actually, the liquidity event that created the family partnership was uh, my father-in-law, in addition to his day job at Vanderbilt being a trauma surgeon, took a company public in the 90s in the mezzanine debt finance space back when that was a esoteric asset class. Yeah. And so we have always had exposure to private credit, mez, and I think right now private credit is really attractive and it's solving the same problem that real estate solves, right? People are cash heavy. They don't want more exposure to the market. They need yield even if the Fed says that inflation is transitory. If anybody listening has paid for private school, healthcare, or a home in the last 10 years, you know inflation is real. And you, you need to keep up with, you need to fight that dragon of inflation through yield, through real you know, monthly distributions and income. And bonds are just, are just a losing proposition and have been for a long time. Well, and, and people talk about the golden age of bonds and that it's been a 30-year bull market for bonds, which is kind of a bizarre notion since they they really aren't paying anything. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when CDs in the bank were paying 11 and 12 percent and when mortgages were 16 and 17 percent. Um, and, and so you know, I think we have an entire generation of investors now, millennials, but definitely Gen Z, but also millennials who don't remember what inflation is because they've never really seen it as adult mm -hmm. humans. Um, so, so when we start talking about the amount of money that it will take to reach financial independence, you know, we, we, we espouse that, that to graduate into retirement means to have financial independence at any age, whether you're 33 or 83, but in order to get there, especially if you're a young person is going to require an amount of capital right now that on paper looks obscene. It's so huge. But it's because of the devaluing of the dollar, not only from uh, general inflation, but also from the government printing money and spending like, like, it's, like it's Halloween candy being handed out. Um, what do we tell young people? What are you telling young people, young investors especially, um, who are trying to figure out just how much it's going to take to reach that level of abundance where work is optional when inflation's on the horizon and they've never seen it before? How do we, how do we communicate that? It's a challenge. I'm 39. I've never experienced it. But talking to my father, who, you know, when he bought his home, I think his mortgage rate was 14%. That honestly is unimaginable to me. I, I cannot conceive of an investing world where that type of inflation is happening. And it, it's going to be very challenging. Um, but I agree with you. It seems like 
the White House, whatever party is in the White House, has has realized they can use their bully pulpit with the Fed. And instead of going through natural cycles of recessions and recoveries, they realize they can just turn the printing press on and we don't have to go through protracted recessions any longer. We can we can solve this problem through modern monetary theory, which I think is a total joke. At some point, you need to pay your debts. And now the Fed is in a trap because if they raise rates 200 basis points, we can't pay our own debt. Right. We, right. we become insolvent. And, you know, right now, treasuries are are clipping, you know, those sales are going through and but the Fed is buying them. And and we've we're in a real pickle, I think. So I am very bearish on the dollar. I'm very bearish on bonds long term. I'm bearish on on US debt in general. I, I still think it's a wonderful place to invest. I, I still think we have the most dynamic economy in the world, especially when you compare us to a Western Europe um, whose demographics are really poor in, in Japan, which is going in, in the wrong direction. But I think a, a stagflation scenario is, is very likely. And the Fed is so worried about deflation that I'm afraid they're going to err on the side of, of inflation. So we, we just we just threw out a lot of jargon to a lot of people. Sorry, who, sorry. I, no, 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 no. I'm not I'm not asking for an apology. I'm I'm saying both of us have done that. So let's let's bring this back to um uh, to a level where everyone can sort of wrap their head around a 14 percent mortgage, because you know right now if somebody gets three and a half percent, they feel like they've been taken advantage of because they saw somebody else get three and a quarter or two and seven eighths or something crazy. So this is such a good time to be borrowing money long-term. It's a disastrous time to be lending money long-term, which is mm-hmm. what you're doing when you buy a bond. You're lending money, potentially long-term. What are the banks and the financial institutions and intermediaries going to do when they're paying 6% on certificates of deposit and they're collecting 2.5% on, on other types of debt? I, I guess they're going to have to monetize and sell it, but they're going to sell it at a loss, aren't they? There'll be a lot of consolidation within that market where, you know, just like with 08, there'll be a washout and the well-capitalized balance sheet folks like a Goldman will gobble up some of these groups. But I agree with you. It's a terrific time to be a real estate investor. Um, We're getting 10 years interest only on a lot of our commercial assets, which is wonderful for me as a sponsor and for my investors because they can get that wonderful yield. But for the bank who's originating the debt and for the secondary market where they they sell these bonds to other investors who are maybe getting a 200 basis point premium on that in 10 years, I I think they're going to really regret these deals. But there's so much pressure from the Fed to put that money to work that they, they can't sit on cash. And so they're also in a bit of a trap. So uh, up until 2007, there was a notion that real estate prices could only go up. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of speculation, particularly residential speculation and flipping and all of this was, was being discussed in every cab ride I took in every city I was in. I was hearing about the, the flipping of houses. It reminded me of 1999 where cab drivers were bragging about their tech stocks. I mean, literally. 
And so we learned that, in fact, real estate prices can change, especially in places like Florida, where it's a lot of second homes, where folks are uh, more likely to just say, here are the keys, I'm out. And it created this, this enormous issue. Um, on the commercial side, 2008 and nine wasn't as disastrous for commercial, but COVID has played a real, a real difference in office space. And I've heard some folks say the office space of the future will be totally different than it is today because um, people can work remotely. And I've heard other people say, well, wait, there's going to be a need for more space because people are going to want more, more square feet per, per employee um, mm. for health reasons. Uh, is is the traditional office cubicle farm over? Are we done with that? Who knows? <laughs> An unsatisfying well, answer to a hard question. Yes. No, that's why I'm asking. You're supposed we, to have the crystal ball. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well. I must have left it on the plane last night. But <laughs> yeah. If we all suffer from recency bias. Oh, yeah. And we think the way we live the last two years is how we're going to live the next 10 years. And that's just simply not the case, right? And so I personally believe there'll be winners and losers in the office world. And I'm speaking from a place where we have $200 million worth of suburban office, mostly in the Sunbelt Southeast. And it's, it's done decently well. Um, but there is a lot of wait and see by these larger employers. Things are really gaining momentum heading into the summer and the Delta was a, was a bit of a, a break on that momentum, but it's picking back up. And to your point, I think the way we use office will change, but I don't think you'll see a secular decline in office as an asset class. I think COVID and quarantine and lockdown has taught us that we can be efficient remotely, but we really lose out on the dynamism of, teamwork and creativity and that energy of being together, that communication is not transferable to being 100% remote. And so I think you'll see maybe some groups that don't have a single mothership in San Francisco, New York, but they'll have a, a distributed workforce across multiple markets in smaller settings. And you'll see office use as a place for team meetings, and, and group sessions, and then also places where people can really focus and get work done. I think a lot of people who are prognosticating about the future of office are 65-year-old CEOs, but the millennials and Gen Zs that I work with who are living in apartments, they don't really have a dedicated workspace, and they like to work, they work hard. And so I think you'll see this bifurcation where there'll be these, these settings where you can get group work done. And then you'll see some, some really kind of focused work areas where people can actually get product out the door. So that's my two cents, but it's hard to know. I would be really concerned if I owned a lot of office in New York City or, or the Bay Area. I think that will be a very challenging time for them. So there's lots of different ways to invest in real estate and lots of different sectors. And it's beyond the scope of the show to break down, you know, all the different ways to do this in terms of uh, do you want industrial properties and warehouses and, and distribution centers? Do you want retail? I, I, I can't imagine that there'll ever be another shopping mall built again. Maybe I'm wrong, um, I, but, but it sure seems like it, it was dying anyway and COVID killed it. 
there are other spots where that's not true. Multifamily certainly still interesting. There are lots of different ways to look at this. But for the general investor, for the general listener, what is the best way to learn about these types of asset classes? Uh, some of them can learn certainly from their financial advisors. We certainly do our best to educate our clients on various things. But where can someone who maybe doesn't have that dedicated advisor learn more in, a, in an objective, general way? And, and that's what's exciting about what's happening right now is, we alluded to this earlier, this information is all out there and it's free, right? Wall Street used to have gates up and you know you couldn't really access private equity. You couldn't learn about these things unless you got invited to the JP Morgan conference or you were in the conference room or et cetera. But now it's, it's out there in the ether, right? Podcasting, blogs, books, webinars, social media means that you can find me on LinkedIn shoot me a note. Hey, I want to learn about XYZ and what you do. Well, sure, let's set up a, a quick call, right? It, it's out there for people to learn about. And my advice for folks who are just getting into the space is invest in something that you know, invest in something that you feel comfortable with, have an allocation going into the year that you want to put $100 to work. And you want to invest in four opportunities. So ballpark one a quarter. And if you live in an apartment uh, and you live in Austin, Texas, well, see if you can get in on some Austin, Texas apartment deals, right? Go to your backyard, go to what you're familiar with and listen to your gut. I mean, real estate is hyper local. And so that's where I would start. I wouldn't try to just pick the winners. I'd be very cautioned about over allocating to one opportunity because now you really can spread it around. Minimums are lower. Some of these larger crowdfunding websites, I think, have challenges from their business model perspective, which we can get into. But I think they do an excellent job of creating educational content and giving people access for very low minimums. And you can start to learn, okay, geez, I did this development deal and it went sideways. That's too risky for me. I can't stomach that. I want to go something more stabilized, more cash flow oriented with maybe less upside, but I just... I feel more comfortable there. You can start to learn what you like, what you don't like. Um, and so I would just have that be part of your homework assignment is a few hours a week, listen to shows like this, go online, and then start to build some of these relationships with some of these sponsors or investors uh, like myself. Brian, I think you, you just said that this was the homework assignment. I got to tell you, we've promised all of our listeners there would be no homework, just extra credit. So I think you've just given us our extra credit assignment for the episode. Um, if you have another one you want to give us, this is the time because we're, we're running out of time. And I, I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you and how to learn more. But is there other than uh, the investing in something you know and are comfortable with and that's hyper local and, and known to you? Um, is that your extra credit assignment or did you have another pearl of wisdom for us on the way out? I've got something else. Um, my homework, my extra credit assignment for folks would be, especially considering the orientation of the show, think about your journey into retirement or whatever term you want to use there and do what family offices do, which is, okay, I'm trying to create multi-generational wealth. And even if you don't consider yourself a multi-generational investor, 
you can still have a set time horizon, right? I'm going to live until I'm 90, or I want to achieve this by the time I'm 60, 70, whatever. So you've got a set time frame. You have a spend rate, right? You have overhead. So let's peg that at 4%, 5%. You peg inflation at 2%, 3%. And you go and look at what stocks and bonds are going to give you, which we touched on, right? So if you say bonds are going to be 2%, the market's going to give you 4 You put all these things together in a very simple spreadsheet, and you realize pretty quickly to maintain your quality of life, which is what we're talking about here, right? And considering your overhead, well, after taxes and expenses, you have your nut, which you need to cover, right? Your net returns. And in order to get there, you have to be exposed to private equity, to commercial real estate, to alternatives, because you're not going to be able to get 8 to 10% annually by just going into the S&P index fund. Sage advice, Brian. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. I'm sorry it's ending already. There's a lot I know we could all learn from you and your experience. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. How can folks learn more about you and about Excelsior if they're interested in, in knowing more? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Like I mentioned, I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you want to look me up, Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note. I'd be happy to connect. Go to the website, excelsiorgp.com, and we have a lot of resources there um, and encourage people to reach out if they want to learn more and always happy to help however I can. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Um, You were a great guest. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Please also check out our books, workbooks, and online financial literacy resources at brotmanmedia.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin changing the way we view retirement. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at brotmanmedia.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.